what he wanted to do was show how contraception was limiting the gift of one person to another. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knees Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined today by Dave I Spread Fecundity Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? <laughs> I'm good. That's my favorite name so far. Fecund. Fecund, Fecund Van Vickle. <laughs> so when I first started layevangelist.com, yeah. I wanted Theology of the Body to be one of the, like, key talks that I gave and like yeah. workshops and stuff. Yeah. And so I made t-shirts on one of those like t-shirt websites where you can put a bunch of designs and order individual things. And it was a man in a top hat and a cane and a suit. And it said, I spread fecundity. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought it was so funny. And I would tell people about it. And they're like, what is, what is that? fecundity? Right. I'm like, I don't know. You. It was one of the first talks I ever listened to by Fulton Sheen. That's why I know that word. Fecundity? Yeah. It was, I, the talk was called fecundity and he was talking about the goodness of God and like, and then he went all the way to contraception and stuff like that. Like, was this from life is worth living? Like one of his I shows? Don't or was, okay. I don't remember. Man, Sheen, what an amazing guy Sheen was. I've been thinking about it so much lately yeah. because this is so rare that you have, and people always try equivocation when you talk about him, people yeah. always be like, well, well, this person's like the new Sheen. And it's like, no, he's not. No one's like the new no, Sheen. No, he, he's so witty. Yeah. He's so precise. He's so philosophical. Yeah. He's so spiritual, mm-hmm. right? It's just, oh, man, it's amazing. Yeah, one of the things that struck me about him, so I went out to Peoria Heights to one of the churches there that invited me out for a parish mission in March. And that's really where I discerned leaving, going to full-time speaking. Really? And yeah. Maybe it was Sheen calling you into it. Well, that's why I left. My last day on the job was May 8th. So I was trying to figure out, should it be May 1st, May 31st? Should it be August before the school year begins? Like, right. so I can oversee like new hires and stuff. And I was going back and forth and uh, I was praying. I was actually asking for the intercession of Venerable Fulton Sheen because I knew I was going to go to his crypt and I was going to go to the, his cathedral where he was ordained and all that stuff. And then the museum. And as I'm walking around in the museum, when you walk in, you know, there's all these pictures of young Fulton. And it said he was born on May 8th. And I was like, May 8th, that'll be my last day. So that's what I did. I went back. That's so awesome. Can I tell you the funniest thing about resigning? Yes. I didn't. You're supposed to write a letter of resignation. Yeah, no, I didn't. You pulled your shirt off. It was like, (laughs) I'm out of here. Everyone who quits their job thinks of doing something like that. Like, you're about to get the unvarnished truth. Right. No, I lied. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but uh, <laughs> I had Chat GPT write my letter of resignation. That's not true. It's 100 percent true. I, I didn't know how to start it, and so I was like, Chat GPT, write a letter of resignation to the pastor of a church on behalf of an employee to resign on May 8th. Do you understand that <laughs> a luddite like me hears that, and I feel that you're compromised at this point? I'm like, I'm literally like starting to get. I'm going to check you for bugs. <laughs> He's one of them. <laughs> Yeah, well, it wrote a beautiful letter. I just had to tweak a couple individual things. It was really funny, but it was on point. It's scary. It is scary. Yeah. Listen, I just heard a story about Fulton Sheen okay. that I'd never heard before. Oh, right. We were talking about him, not me. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Did you know that when he finished his schooling, right, like it was clear he was head and shoulders above scholars of his day, okay? Yeah. So there was no question about it. When he went back to Illinois, the bishop put him in a, a tiny little parish for two years. Do you know this? Uh, to keep him uh, humble? He, he said he just wanted to see if he would say yes. Like uh, that was it. 
Isn't that crazy? That is best smart. Oh my gosh. Smart. I love it. Yeah. I want to say he's the one that when he finished his habilitation, right. the postdoctoral work that they have in ecclesial university. So you get your, right. you know, their version of the doctor, the ecclesial doctorate. And then after that, the, I think it's called the habili- habilitation. I don't know. Oh, whatever. And uh, something fancy. And uh, <laughs> I think it was the Louvain where he was at. They was. walk in and when you finish, you discover if you passed or not by what people are drinking when you walk in the room. Are you kidding? So they throw a banquet in your honor. So if it's okay. water, you didn't pass. If it's beer, you passed. If it's wine, you passed with high honors. And they walked in. <laughs> such a Catholic right, thing. I know. And not only was it not beer, nor wine, nor water, it was champagne. When he walked in, they all raised that. Yeah. That's the story that I heard. That's the I'm going to that request that when I finish my doctorate <laughs> that that's how they do it. I'm going to just request it. I'm like, I'll pay for it. Yeah. You guys don't need to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, you did not do very well, though. It's like, I know, but I'm paying for it. So can't you just do it? <laughs> so can't you just drink beer in my honor? What is that, Kool-Aid? I don't even, this is mixed messages. Yeah, so that's uh, so funny. But he he was also by ritual. He was also right, Eastern. Right, right. He used to celebrate Eastern. And I didn't know that, the Eastern liturgy of the, the Byzantine church, I believe. And he would go and do a lot. I was like, whoa, he was, like, this guy was everything. Like, yeah. he did so much stuff. He was the missions guy. Right. And he was constant. All the money, all the profit that he made from all of his TV shows, especially in the beginning, I think the first like eight years, he just sent to the missions. Yeah. He didn't even take money from it. So, so he preached in Pittsburgh several times. Nice. And one of them is at my best priest friend's parish. And it's one of those like ambos, or I don't know what you call it, but like where you go upstairs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got the where you, the pulpit's a little higher. Yeah, right. Yeah. So they were telling me about it. And I was like, I'm going to go up there just to like. Yeah. See. Yeah. Because I've, I've been getting really into Fulton Sheen now, you know, yeah. I've, as I followed this terrible story about his body and everything you know (laughs) and so no one was around so i decided i'd go up there and you know it's like a thousand years old so it's like i'm a big guy it's like creaking and you know and i'm like please don't break please don't break you know so i just like sit there and then someone comes in and i like peek over and it's the pastor (laughs) and i panic and i'm like i gotta get down quick so i slip and fall down the stairs (laughs) The church could not be more echoey than any. It was so awful. Uh, it was so did awful. Did you get in trouble? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I mean, I'm banned for life, but right. it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> no, I think fine. I think he looked at me and saw that it was me, and he's like, well, what am I going to do? Like, like, he's like, you're like giving a mission here next week. So, like, Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I just wanted to try it out. <laughs> right. All right. All the lay speakers do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So continuing the great work of Fulton Sheen, we want to talk about marriage. We want to keep the idea going of looking through the lens of Master Evangelist St. Pope John Paul II, especially his bookings on the theology of the body in order to evangelize and disciple people within our culture today. So one of those areas of our culture that Catholics are compromising the most on is the teaching of Cassie Canubi and Humane Vitae and all these other documents of the church in the in the past, the unbroken tradition right. of condemning contraception. And so for those of you who don't know, when St. Pope Paul VI wrote his famous encyclical Humane Vitae on human life, when he wrote that, it was received so terribly that people feared it would literally split the church. Yeah, destroy the church. It would destroy it. It would cause a huge schism. In fact, I, I was reading the history of it. I think he had 12 advisors, and all 12 went the opposite way. I mean, that's why he's a saint, because yeah. he he stood strong. He is a sainted pontiff because he taught 
a very difficult and unpopular doctrine, even when all his pastoral advisors told him not to because it was unpopular. Imagine that. That's straight John the Baptist action right there. Yeah, I yeah. love it. I yeah. love it. You know what, though? Also, something to, to ponder is how prophetic that document yeah. was, right? I mean, if if we didn't believe it then, you ought to believe it now just because of the predictions he makes. Yeah, and in Humanae Vitae, it's, an argue, it's a new argument against contraception from the papal side of right. things, right? right? So from the official church teaching, what he wanted to do was show how contraception was limiting the gift of one person to another, as opposed to putting it in the language of Thomistic metaphysics, which can be difficult, for a lay audience, he wanted people to see how, even if you take it out of the Thomistic context, it still is an argument that holds water, a view that you can still bank on. And it's funny when you actually read Humane Vitae that there's like maybe four paragraphs that are directly about contraception. Right. And there's like 38 paragraphs that are about human love and relationships and the meaning of marriage. It's super and all accessible. That if you yeah. haven't read it, you should read it. Yeah. And I actually make all of my couples that I do on validation prep with who are still of birthing age, uh, which is an awkward thing to ask people, hey, so can you still get pregnant? Um, you should come to my class. So we go through a chunk of it. And I was, I'm, I just, I said, I'm like, you would be surprised how little this document on contraception has to do with actually, you know, the, the condemnation of contraception. It's very minimal. However, the whole language is is appropriate. And let me just say this, and then we can kind of open it up. The church's teaching about contraception embodies, in a sense, its teaching about abortion, in vitro fertilization, all of these things, because it, it's essentially this. The moment you separate out the sexual act from procreation, whether you are doing it in favor of sex without the consequence of procreation or procreation because sex isn't creative, it's not working, so you're using technologies to kind of intervene. Whenever you separate the act of sex from procreation, you are doing something fundamentally wrong, right? That's the kind of insight of the church is that sex is an act which is ordered towards procreation. Ordered towards doesn't mean it always results in procreation, but it means that it is that type of act that is always open to that. As, as evangelists, I want you to take special note of what he just said, because that is the way to approach all of these issues, right? Yeah. As opposed to picking on, right? And I'm using air quotes to Gomer right now, even though you can't see me. Like people think we pick on certain genres of sexual activity and decide they're not okay. That's not true at all. Yeah. Like when it comes to same sex attraction, when it comes to in vitro fertilization, all these things, we look at them the same way as even self abuse, right? Like there's no procreative aspect to it. And so it cannot happen. So from that perspective, the Catholic condemnation of contraception has been with us from the earliest documents of the church. So the one of the earliest scholars kind of argue over the date of this, but within the first century, there's a document called the Didache. Yeah. And it condemns in one breath, in the same sentence, contraception and abortion. You might say, what kind of contraceptives did they have way back then? Oh, they well, number one, they have a contraception that every culture has had, which is the sin of onanism. 
<laughs> Most people don't know this, but contraception is in the Bible, the earliest form, which is colloquially call it pulling out early, right? So the idea is in the middle of the, David is like so uh, shocked that I'm talking about this, mm-hmm. but we're all adults here, probably. The idea is that the man does not finish the sexual act within the woman. So with the hope being that he spilleth his seed upon the ground as the King James has it and avoids pregnancy, right? That is classified as contraception. Of course it is. Right. Yeah, right. And so what did God do in the Bible to Onan? He killed Onan. Uh, <laughs> it was an abomination under the Lord. There's actually a Protestant author. I can't remember his name, but his book is called Godly Seed. And it was all about a Protestant view of contraception, basically from Luther onward, and why it's it should be condemned just like the Catholics condemn yeah, it. Yeah, I think I got a little wacky, though. Just you know, oh, if, you're, really? if you're looking at the book, yeah. Oh, no, oh, that's yeah. the only thing I have of them. <laughs> but so looking at it from this perspective, a lot of people think that it's artificial forms of contraception. Right. And so they think, uh, well, natural family planning, that's a natural form of contraception because nope. natural it's allowed, but artificial forms are condemned. And it's like, well, no, no. Th- that's not true at all because that was the argument for the pill. When the pill, you know, invented in the 50s, popular in the 60s, when it was allowed, the idea was, well, it's natural because it's just augmenting and amplifying the already existing cycles within the woman. It's not a physical barrier. It's not a device. It's not a condom. It's not these things that are physically trying to remove the sexual act from its completion. It's just saying, hey, we're going to favor these hormones over those so that the woman's body doesn't get fertilized. So the eggs don't fertilize. And that was the subject of the great debate. Does this fall under the same kind of ban that contraceptive devices have had since the Didache? And the other devices that they had for contraception, sorry, I meant to say that was like in Egypt, Egypt was an exporter of quote unquote potions that would try to sterilize. They would do things like do incense into the womb. So they would, yeah, it's crazy. And tried to shrivel up the uterine lining so that even though an egg might get fertilized, it couldn't implant. Now they didn't have a full knowledge of this stuff. They just knew, wow, if we distort a woman's body enough it probably can't get pregnant if we stress it enough if we damage it enough and guess what that's still what we're doing with chemicals today women's bodies it just is shrouded under kind of like the medical the medical profession right now yeah it's important also for us to understand as evangelists right the historical perspective that this whole scale adoption of contraception is okay is a historically new thing Right, it wasn't until the Lambeth Conference, and when, when was the Lambeth Conference? Like 1929 or something like that. Yeah, it was 1929, 1930. Yeah. Okay. When you know most of the other Protestant yep. denominations said it was okay, and and then I think it was just the Catholics and the Anglicans, and then the Anglicans. The, eventually- the Lambeth Conference is the triannual Anglican conference. Okay. So the okay. Anglicans were the first one to say yes to contraception, okay. Okay. but it had to be done within a committed marriage. And it had to be done for very limited reasons. Right. And when the Pope responded with Casti Canubi, he was basically saying, and this is also prophetic, he was basically saying, you open the door a little, you're going to open the door all the way. Yeah. You can't play these games of pretend. Now look at the Anglican Church today. Within 30 years, right, their entire sexual morality edifice had been undermined right. officially. Not only did they start ordaining women, but then they started actively ordaining active homosexuals, homosexuals right. lesbians, to be bishops, right? And so uh, famously, there's an amazing speech on on homosexuality <laughs> given by Reverend Calvin 
Oh, what is his name? Calvin Robinson. Oh, I've heard of, I've been hearing about this guy. Yeah, yeah. I've so never, I watched his Oxford yeah. debate. Okay. Basically, he was like in limbo because his bishop, who was the female bishop of London, refused to ordain him oh. because he wasn't sufficiently woke. And so he did this debate, one of the best articulations of classical, traditional Christian uh, marital ethics. And, uh, you know, he was booed and everyone hated him at the at and Oxford. He, he's like super cool or something like that. Yeah, he's a fun a, guy. Yes. But he also has like a BBC show and he's okay. like okay. Mr. Anti-Woke and all this wow. stuff. So he actually, because of that Oxford thing and subsequent people finding out that his bishop wouldn't ordain him. He's actually coming, I think, I believe the last I heard, he's coming to the United States to be ordained yeah. in an Anglican church here in the States uh, or of uh, uh. conservative Anglicans. Wow. Such a mess now that uh, the 11th bishop just entered the Roman Catholic Church from Anglicanism. Because of this. Because right? of, of this. Of so the consequences are real. So the Lambeth Conference allowed it. And here in the United States, Margaret Sanger, who's the founder of the organization that would become Planned Parenthood, she was hyper pro contraception. She believed that contraception would make women as much like men as possible to enjoy. And she was basically like an occultist and yeah. that sex was a form of a mystical enlightenment. Yeah. And the other thing she, she wanted, was a eugenicist, big time. Yeah. The other thing she wanted was to get rid of black and brown people. Right. And so not only was she very favorable, she wrote letters praising Hitler's eugenics program, which is insane. She also helped to get Latino women in, I want to say it was Indianapolis. I can't remember where. We're in the Midwest, get policies of sterilization right. without consent right. and like crazy stuff. And she partnered with that socialist black activist, W.E.B. Boyce, in order to promote contraception among black people. Because like almost every other Christian in America, they saw contraception as equal to abortion and they were all evil. So his work was to separate the two and then to say, if you want to get out of poverty, only have one kid. Basically, it was the push. One of my favorite memories of Amber is uh, I can't remember what, what's the movie where the, where the family has all those kids. Have you ever seen this old movie and they have like 10 kids or something like that. And the lady from Planned Parenthood comes to the house and she's like, we heard that your wife would be perfect for an event or something like that. And they, she calls all the kids down and the lady from Planned Parenthood is like, Oh my gosh, like what's wrong with you? Like having all these kids, it's hilarious. But Amber, well, Amber used to say that? like, that's my dream. I want, I want to, I want to have that happen. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember if it's room for one more or something like that. I, I can't remember which movie it was, but it was one of, one of her favorite things, but it's important. I think, for us to talk about a compassionate accompaniment for those who are using contraception, right? This is, it's a cultural norm at this point. Yeah, 100%. And so as evangelist catechists, you have to not only be able to teach what the problems are, but to be able as Catholics, as the church to accompany people who want to turn over their sex life to the, the law of truth, right? And to the God given way Right. And so it's really important. And I want to talk about that a little bit that it, it can be a complete cultural change in a family and a change that causes unbelievable amount of stress, maybe unnecessarily, but it's important for us to not just say, Hey, you need to get off that. Right. You need to get off contraception. That's, that's not the Catholic teaching. We have to help them to be able to transition into a Catholic family life that they can, they can survive. Right. Yeah. And one of the problems with those Catholics who follow the church's teaching on contraception is that as who follow, yeah, who, who are follow who, the church, who, who okay. are good okay. in their sexual practice, okay. who are striving to follow after the church. Sometimes 
we make it seem like practicing natural family planning is a cakewalk and all this stuff is easy yeah. and uh, oh yeah you'll be holy and god will bless it and you'll have kids when you want oh, yeah. and that's a terrible it is it was a terrible narrative it, it's a sales pitch it it's is. a sales yeah. pitch not a terrible narrative there that's true in some sense yeah right yeah but the the thing is doing nfp now why is doing nfp let me just say this natural family planning where the bubble through conversation through understanding respects the natural cycles of fertility of the woman so as to avoid or planning to get pregnant, right? So you look for the signs of fertility and there are many signs that a woman's body presents in order to understand whether or not she's fertile. And then you save or engage in actual activity in order to have kids or not. Now, one of the interesting things about that though, is we can become very dismissive of people who aren't brought up with this notion, uh, who are brought up in a contraceptive mentality. Right. So number one, sometimes we oversell NFP as this perfect, flawless system. It can be heartbreaking. It can be difficult when you find out that, for instance, your wife's cycles are not perfect. And then all of a sudden, she has fertility days that get sneaky, sneaky, and your chances of getting pregnant go up, and you're trying to avoid pregnancy, and we're going to get into that in a minute. It can be deeply burdensome when when you discover like all of a sudden we're trying to avoid kids we're doing everything right and then she's pregnant and now you know dot 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 so that's one thing the other thing is that look at us we're striving to do this difficult thing we're living according to the church's teaching it becomes very easy to dismiss people who who engage in contraception but what Dave was saying is it is the cultural norm. Right. And so for most people, they've never even been told what the church teaches, let alone why the church teaches it. And so we have to double down on our diligence and and respect and patience for people because it can very easily, we can just write people off. You're not as disciplined as I am, virtuous as I am. So there is a caution here because I've run into a lot of these people. And then you run into the people who are even worse than the, like the, <laughs> the self-righteous, which is like, they don't do NFP. They're just, you know what? We're just going to do it. Like the full quiver. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, we want, I mean, like it's okay to want huge families, right? The church, <laughs> unlike what a lot of people say, the church never said, don't have big families. No. Don't multiply like rabbits. Right. right? right like right, that horrible right, comment. Right. The church, church says you have to have grave reasons to space having children right, right that it can be right proper rational and good to space children out for whatever reason but they have to be grave serious reasons and that's part of the teaching that gets left off the plate like for a lot of people with nfp who are practicing nfp yeah is they have a contraceptive mindset and what do we mean by that we mean well it's our fertility we're going to dictate when and where. And the church says, no, no, no. Yeah, but you're not using the criteria. And the criteria is for grave reason. Finances can or cannot be grave reasons, right? Uh, your you know, mental, physical, emotional health, all this stuff comes into play in the conversation your spouses are having about whether or not we want to try for another baby. But at the same time, the church commands you to be generous. Right. That's not an option. That's the default. Yeah. I think one thing to remember here in these conversations, and I've had hundreds of (laughs) these conversations, right? I mean, this is a normal thing if you're evangelizing in a parish. For a parish. Right. And help out with marriage prep without these. So it's important to understand that, first of all, your pastor might even not understand this, what Gomer's saying. You have to remember that if 98% of his parishioners are contracepting and 2% are using NFP, in his mind, that 2% is saints. 
right? They're yes. they're saints. And so oftentimes, I've heard that comment. Oh no, they're they're my saints. Right? Why? Because they're not contraceptive. Exactly. Like, oh. And oftentimes, that is without any discernment whatsoever. Like they might not be following the rules that Gomer talked about before. Number two. That is the first conversation. You have to help them discern whether or not this is okay. Okay. You have to help them discern whether, and those are tough, tough things. One of the things I found is there just aren't examples like there used to be of huge thriving families that are happy, right? You don't, you don't, don't have those examples because most people, they're going to throw up a million reasons why they need to do this. Usually financial, right? It's usually financial. And if they could see an example, you know, and, and I always found, I mean, I'm sure people are going to say I'm crazy, but it's like, once we had three kids, like what's one more after that? I mean, that's honestly the way it seemed for us. You know what I mean? That's why when people say it costs like $280,000 to per kid to get them to 18. Like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Now it might cost the first kid that much, but when you, you got this magical thing called hand me downs, you know, you're yeah. (laughs) Mike, my really good friends, they have three sets of twins. They have 11 kids, three sets of twins, three sets of twins. They have 11 kids. They're awesome. They come over to our house all the time. In fact, they're coming over tonight for a family rosary. He's, he's like become one of my best friends and I love having them around because they function so well as this giant family. Yeah. And he works for a Catholic school. I mean, he, I'm, I, I, would, I don't know what he makes, but I would guess that it's not a Probably lot. Probably not six figures. Right. And yeah. it's like they make it work, right? They do yeah. vacations and they have all the things that you think like, oh, I won't be able to do this anymore, right? Yeah. And it's just like such a wonderful testament to I would love for them to speak all over because people would see the example yeah. of what it's like. You know? Yeah, my big thing, we, we have to overcome institutional hurdles or cultural hurdles, cultural hurdles about right. procreation. Right. Uh, number one, our culture has a fear of children. And if you don't believe me, just go to the horror section of your local blockbuster, which is not really yep. a thing anymore, but uh, <laughs> and walk and look at all the ones where children are the villains. And Bishop Barron actually pointed that up where he said, if you look at the video cassettes, video cassettes, if you look at the covers of movies, <laughs> video cassettes. sorry, if you, if you the, avoid the dinosaurs on the way there and then look <laughs> at the video cassettes, <laughs> if you see Fred Flintstone, no, there is an inherent fear of children. Children are terrifying. If you're, too, <laughs> if you're a single unmarried person, yeah. the prospect of a woman who's single and unmarried getting pregnant can be life-shattering, life-altering, all this stuff, which is why the Catholic Church has, you know, especially since Roe v. Wade, has always tried to build up pregnancy assistance centers and helping, you know, teen moms, young moms, all of this stuff. So when you hear people on the left criticize our anti-Roe v. Wade stance, they'll say, well, you care more about babies in the womb than outside the womb. It's, it's a total lie. There are literally hundreds of organizations right. that'll help. They'll even, they'll even people who will take the child for infancy and give the child back, back to, you to you as a right. toddler right. like or, or older. Like, that's crazy that someone would do that to their heart. Yeah. I have friends who foster, not foster to adopt, but they foster infants. And every year they have to give the child back. Oh. And like that heartbreak, yeah, right. And and one, they actually the mothers gave up her maternal rights, and they were like three weeks away from adopting this beautiful child. And the mother reasserted her rights and took the child back. And for them, they said, "We cried a lot, but what greater gift could we give? Of course, what greater gift could we give this child and this child's mother? A great head start." So, okay, so we say that. But the other thing of uh, going back to understanding sex and sexuality within the covenant that God has with us is that sex and sexuality are meant to be embodied within marriage because the consequences 
are world shattering, right. are, are, are life changing. And so we say to young men and young women, because of hormones and puberty, and all that, you have the overwhelming desire to have sex. For a lot of men, the, traditionally you say that uh, men make sure sex happen, women's libido make sure sex happens at the right place in the right time. And then you want to surround that with cultural norms and narratives, thus marriage, the institution of marriage, that safeguards the woman in the domicile of the man, that it is the man's responsibility to provide and protect for that woman during the most vulnerable, physically, the most vulnerable time of her life, which is when she's pregnant, right? right? I mean, when you when you think about the way one person put it, there's an arms race between a, a woman's pelvis and a baby's head, meaning as humans have bigger brains, right? We are born vulnerable. A deer within two hours is running and jumping right. after birth. A human is not, <laughs> right? right? And the child had to be born earlier and earlier and be less and less self-sufficient out of the womb because of our ginormous brains, right? And so that they don't kill the mother every time the baby is born. So that's the, the trade-off that mother nature has made with us, right? And so this notion of like, this mother is so vulnerable, breastfeeding, you're so vulnerable, right? It's incredible, but vulnerability, right. that institution of marriage is meant to safeguard and protect the woman at her most vulnerable stage at the cost of the life of the man. And then as this builds and builds, you understand the church never says sex is about procreation. The church says it's about the procreation and education of children, children. meaning raising kids, yeah. stable home life, taking the two sides of humanity, masculine and feminine, male and female, mother and father. Every child has a right to his or her own parents. Now, adoption, fostering, that's way of making right and otherwise wrong situation. Right. So my buddy, J.D. Flynn, who has two adopted children with Down syndrome, right? Like they're the hardest kids to adopt people. Oh, you know, we become consumers of our adoption. Oh, I don't want them. And he adopted two kids with Down syndrome. They're incredible. It's so fun to see. I'm a, like friends with them on Facebook and Instagram and stuff. And they're the most precious kids ever. But uh, they adopted. And he wrote this article like the ideal is for her, this kid's parents to raise them. But because they can't, then the concession is, well, we're going to put them in a home that where they can thrive, yeah. right? So think about this. If marriage protects the mother during her most vulnerable time and the child for the raising of the child, then saving sex for marriage becomes that which is the absolute best environment to raise a child. So then engaging in a sexual act outside of marriage becomes, number one, inherently risky and gives you anxiety that you don't need, right. right? No one needs this level of anxiety, though it's fun and enjoyable and you can become pleasure-seeking and all this stuff and it's an expression of romance and intimacy. It is all that. That's why people do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you're putting in a jeopardy. What if you get pregnant? Then the answer is, well, I either have to abort or adopt or I have to now give birth and raise this kid. Yeah. And potentially you're going to do it alone. Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this up. So for those who are DREs, for those who are evangelists out there, right, I remember giving, like doing a hot topic series at my parish. And most of the people who are coming to your talks are older, right? And the contraceptive part of their life is probably over. But I remember they really, really struggled to understand the philosophical aspects of contraception, right? Like it was very, very difficult for them to accept this. And I remember 
struggling. Like, how am I going to get this across them? Like it had gone on like three weeks in a row, these talks where they kept bringing up questions about contraceptives. And I was like, well, we're not getting this across them. And I don't know if you remember this, but there was this article about Tinder in New York. Mm -hmm. They were saying- On the apocalypse of dating by Vanity Fair. Exactly, that one. Okay. And I read this article and I printed it out and I had them read it. And it was like a light went off in their head. Yeah. Because they didn't know that that existed. Yeah. In their mind, they're thinking like contraception in marriage and that's a hard hurdle to get over. But when they saw that, they were like, Oh my lord, this is this is the end of the world, right? Like I mean, I can't remember what the stats are, but it was like the average person working on Wall Street has like a different partner every 3 nights or something like that in New York City. It's it's wow. something unbelievable. Yeah. It was for that when they read that, it was kind of like, "Oh, now I understand because they understand exactly what you're saying. Marriage is a safeguard for for children, for childbirth, for child rearing. It's a safeguard for that. This is what happens when you don't have that safe. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to date myself, right? Because it's about self-care. No, I'm not going on a date with myself. That's uh, exactly what I was about to say. It's like, you're going <laughs> to you're gonna go on a date. No. Uh, do you remember the hit sitcom Murphy Brown? I mean, I never watched when it, I was, but I do remember. So I was obsessed with television, especially sitcoms when I was a kid. Sitcoms and comedians was like my jam. Murphy Brown was a show my parents watched, and sometimes I'd watch it. And it was controversial because Dan Quayle, the vice president yeah. of the United States, criticized Murphy Brown, who's the character. She was a hard-charging, I want to say, D.C. reporter okay. for a news organization. And, you know, she's Candace Bergen's character was like this elite journalist living this awesome life with her fantastic friends. But she wanted a baby, so she got a baby. Oh, yeah, right, right. Someone wrote an article like four or five years after the show had ended saying Dan Quayle was right. And in an interview with Candace Bergen, she talked about, you know, the controversy of, you know, now you got this vice president criticizing a working woman who also wants to have the, you know, have both worlds. You can have it all, right? But she said, you know, it was really weird once we had the baby on the show because there was a handful of episodes that were like all about the baby. But then when we didn't want to talk about the baby, we just didn't talk. The baby wasn't in the show at all. It was not there, right. And so she talked about, she said, I actually felt really guilty when we would like finish a season and the baby was hardly in it at all because I knew, like, that's kind of not really life for a working mother, right. a single working mother, you know. And it was, and so the person was extrapolating from that, like, yeah, you can't just have it all. Like, that's one of the no, myths that no. we try to shove down women's throats because this is what ends up happening. We tell women today that they are meant for more. Get your career. We denigrate being a wife and a mother. Okay, that's number one. And then we tell them that the career is the place of fulfillment. That's not true. Being a wife and a mother is also not a place of fulfillment. It's being united with Christ forever. Uh, But these things are parts of our vocation. Well, what happens when the average woman now delays marriage, so they cohabitate in their 20s, right? That's the standard kind of practice. You cohabitate in your 20s, two or three different partners that you move in with. You are using contraception the whole time because who wants to be pregnant in your 20s, let alone married? And then you go and somewhere in your th- mid to late 30s, you get married and you decide you want to have kids. In, in the OBGYN world, mid to late 30s is what you call geriatric pregnancy. Jeez. Not that you can't get pregnant, oh my gosh. but every year after 35, it starts becoming harder and harder and harder to get pregnant. And so you have these women who now, as a culture, the culture tells them, first establish your career, 
then get married, or you can get married while you're building your career, but don't have kids until after you're established. Cause then you can take a year off. You could do the baby thing and then you could come back and get your daycare going and all that stuff. But what they're finding is, and th- this to me is a fascinating study. This guy did a documentary called baby gap and he wanted to investigate why is there an exponential decline of children in industrialized worlds industrialized economies and it started in 1973 with japan germany and italy which i found funny because that's like world war ii yeah but what happened there because they're two they're they're three really different cultures germany and italy okay whatever european what happened well it's the pill no because in japan the pill wasn't introduced until the 1990s right so it's like okay well what caused the decline it was an economic recession that hit all three countries and women had to go to work women were in the workforce and all that it's like a whole bunch of different issues but the catalyst was economic insecurity so people freaked out and they delayed having oh families my goodness. because what he found was the people having four or more children roughly has stayed the same since the 1950s. The people having three kids and two kids that's roughly stayed the same. Really? The category that has grown, he said, and almost no one has one kid because the reality is if you have one kid, you're probably going to have two. Right. Right. But the reality is the number of people who have had zero children has radically increased that it has offset the combined average of all the others. And he said, because it's the delay in getting married. And then, cause once you're married, generally you have a little stability that then you can say, okay, I'm going to step away from my career while my other partner earns the money to, to supply the needs for the family. Then it's okay to start a family. Right. But if you delay marriage until your thirties and then you delay children until your late thirties, the ability for these women to get pregnant plummets and what they're finding is IVF and all these other assistive fertility treatments have skyrocketed with very little results so right. you, you can get part one of it's called the birth gap online on YouTube for free and they actually interview Kim Kardashian's fertility specialist and the man and then this woman and at one point one of them like they're honest they're like it's slim to none if you're 40 years old even if you froze your eggs at 20 or whatever for you to actually get pregnant and for that baby to last all nine months of a station and they were getting choked so up horrific yeah and he's, he's they're like this is an industry built on wishful thinking and tons of money and death and death and death and contraception so, cans. It, it, yeah. it, I want to yeah. destroy these people. Yeah. It's so horrible. So, you know, and what Dave's referring to is they fertilize more than one embryo and they select, they'll implant a handful, then they'll selectively abort them. There's like a whole abort efficient. Well, well there's a, a, a ratio of what usually like if they put in four, maybe one will yeah. We'll take one. We'll take it's, it, but this horrific. is the com- it's horrific. And these are the things that Pope Paul the sixth was predicting he in Humanae Vitae. He did because children become commodities, right? Right, children become commodities when we do our very best to insert techne, some artifice between us, procreation, and sexuality, right? And that's what we're doing more and more of. So, sex is actually becoming more and more artificial. We think we're getting to some natural state where we're all a bunch of, you know, people walking around on the beach, you know, dipping into and out of casual relationships. And that's normal, man. And, and it's not. It's not at all because we know that marriage, we have known this forever, that family provides essential stability. Yeah. You cannot build a future if you do not have a family. You know, that old phrase, corruption of the best is the worst. Yeah. And I feel like we corrupted one of the best things, like one of the greatest gifts God gave us. And we are living in the worst right now. I mean, it yeah. is like a, 
one of those futuristic movies that's just it's terrifying it's dystopian it's dystopian when we come back from our break we're gonna give you some tips on how to implement a program at your parish to assist couples in making that transition yeah in teaching effectively about the church's view of procreation it's not something to be afraid of but something to love right also we want to remind everyone send us an email over at eksb at ascensionpress.com you know again these are introductory comments there are so many good resources that are out there janet smith has done the line and share of attacking the pro-contraception mentalities both inside and outside of the Catholic Church. There's another book called The Sexual State, which actually talks about how well-funded organizations is what pushed this contraception mentality onto the United States. Looking at you, Rockefellers, and <laughs> things like that, and you know, show me the money, trace the money, you'll find some nefarious dude sitting on a trust fund pile of cash looking to do dirty. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> so uh, yeah, email us, eksb at essentialpress.com, and we'll be right back. Did you know that your personal style can aid in understanding your worth? My name is Lillian Fallon, and I am the author of Theology of Style, Expressing the Unique and Unrepeatable You. And in this book, I dive into this very topic where we discuss how personal style is something that can actually help you grow in understanding in your worth and how you're made in the image of God. You can buy my book at ascensionpress.com forward slash Theology of Style. And we're back. Ladies and gentlemen, I know that was a stirring message from Ascension Press. Probably something with Father Mike Schmitz's face on it. When I met him, uh, it was like an Ascension coffee. Yeah. And honestly, like it, we had like a two hour long conversation and it was like, I, I think about it all the time. Yeah. He really is like, I, I understand the hype completely. Yeah. It's not hype. It's real. Yeah. He, the, this is the funny thing. This is also going back to Fulton Sheen. Yeah. Like there are people who are at that level because they are insanely intelligent okay. and they have social skills, you know? Okay. And Father Mike Schmitz, like at first you think, oh, here's this guy. He gives these popular talks on theology, basically catechism level depth of, and then you actually sit down with him right. and you realize like this man has a comprehensive knowledge of many Many, yep. many I, things. I didn't know that, yeah. Not that it's like, so for me, my favorite conversation I've ever had with him was at Damon's, which is the bar wow, and restaurant. That's been, that's been gone for a while. Yeah. Well, yeah, sadly. It was my very first year doing the Sumo Youth Conferences. It was on main campus, and it was me, him, Jackie, and Bobby Angel. We were on the speaking team. Man. We went. Down. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah, me. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I was like the cave troll, and they were like the elves that had come from Rivendell. I'm so glad I wasn't part of that. Oh my like, gosh, I'm surrounded by so much handsome. <laughs> Sorry for skewing the average downward. Uh, we sat at Damon's, and Father Mike had done this skit where he was giving one of his talks, and he took his Roman collar shirt, he unbuttoned like a couple of them, and inside was a Superman undershirt. Yeah. And he said, you know, the funny thing about Superman, unlike Batman, is that Batman is his superhero alter ego, but Clark Kent is Superman's alter ego. Right. And as so he was talking about this. And so we had, I mean, we shut Damon's down <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning because we were talking about comic books and superheroes. <laughs> the whole, and he could speak intelligently about all of it. It, oh, was, yeah. it was breathtaking. Uh, speaking of breathtaking, let's talk about contraception some more. Okay, so this is our takeaways are how you can walk with a company, things that we need to be offering at the parish level, at the local level, maybe in your home, whatever. 
So Dave came up with three really important steps. Go. Yeah. So if I, so if you're in a parish or if you're in an evangelization setting, I want you to think about three things that need to be part of this. First is communicating well the church's teaching. Okay. This is not as easy as it sounds. And I mean, in several different ways, whether it be through literature, whether it be through talks, whether it be through your classes that you already offer, like pre-marriage prep, but you need to be able to communicate this very, very well. Okay. Number two, you need to have some way that you can help couples discern the licity. Is that how you say it? Licitness. Licitness of whether they can use uh, natural family planning or not in order to, you know, get off of contraception. And number three, once they've discerned that, there has to be a really good class or a really good program or a really good resource on how to do natural family planning, specifically someone in the medical field. Lots of doctors now are getting certified in this, and most cities will find a good Catholic doctor who can do this. But there's nurses and people who are certified to teach this program, and you want to make sure that that is everywhere. Don't make it a hurdle at all. Make it something very easy to do. One of the things that we did at St. Anthony's that this wonderful couple, uh, the same guy that got me into prison ministry, uh, they helped out with couples. And I would give the theology of the body talk, which is really the come to Jesus talk using the theology of the body. What they had set up was they would have young couples give their NFP testimony. And you couldn't have had a better thing. So they talked about the negative, con- like what is contraception, the negative consequence of contraception, the church is teaching on contraception. And then they would talk about NFP as something that could get you similar results, but without the sin, right? And then they brought in young couples giving their testimony. So usually these were couples in their 30s and 40s, and they would come in and offer their testimony as like, this is what we did. This is why we did it. These are the results that we've had. And they were joyful testimonies, right? And the idea behind it was people who are young adults discerning marriage want to hear from young adults who are a little bit ahead of them or adults a little bit more advanced, like what has made it successful because they all are operating out of this contraceptive mentality that you have to break it down for them and break it down. Isn't just teaching. It's like the lived practice. So I would encourage you maybe have four couples that can give great NFP testimonies, walk them through your keynote, your talks on it, and have them walk through their testimony. So, you know, some people can go off the reservation with some of this stuff. You don't want that. But um, yeah. And so by having testimony, incorporating testimony into it, I think you'll have a bigger impact in, in a shorter amount of time. Amen. Hope you have gotten something out of this. I know we certainly get a lot out of uh, trying to communicate this kind of stuff to you guys. We love being a part of this. So we're going to continue on with this series and we hope you'll continue to join us. God bless you all. 